Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara and Stan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. this episode a few days ago as a live conversation event hosted by the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas, where Dr. Romer and I discussed the new documentary film Anne Frank Parallel Stories, which was released earlier this year and is currently accessible on Netflix. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This film is layered into three ways. The first one is that we have this constant character of Katarina, whose voice we never really hear, but we watch her as she's going through the sites of memory that pertain to Anne Frank's trajectory in the Holocaust. And so when the film begins, we actually see Katarina's journey where Anne Frank's ended. So she's at Bergen-Belsen. And we follow that trajectory from the end of Anne Frank's life until the beginning with Katarina ending the the film actually inside the room where Anne Frank was hid with her family. And throughout this time, she's constantly on social media posting about the experience that she's having and communicating with the memories that she is seeing there. The second layer that we have to this documentary is the voice of Helen Mirren. And in this documentary, she is retelling or reenacting the story of Anne Frank. And throughout the whole time, she is in Anne Frank's room. And she reads entries from the diaries. We hear her voice, which is confined to that very physical space. And in between these two layers, we actually have a whole other dimension, which are the stories of five women who are today the same age that Anne Frank would have been if she had survived the Holocaust. And so these survivors are the ones that take us as the viewers through the aftermath of the Holocaust. And through their narratives, we are able to then follow how their memories after the war have shaped up and how they're being passed down to their children and grandchildren. So that's just a quick recap of the film. And so Dr. Romer, what do you think of the idea of watching an Anne Frank movie? Well, you know, I think the first thing that we have to notice is that we always think Anne Frank while we know about Anne Frank. And, you know, in lots of ways we do. Anne Frank's diary was found um, by her father immediately in the aftermath of, of the war and the Holocaust in the annex published in 47. And then I think by now translated into 70 different languages mm-hmm. and copied into 30 million. So it's a very known story. So why do we need another movie about it? What's there for us to learn? And I think this movie and our documentary in particular is trying to kind of get at an issue that has always kind of been at the heart of the debates about Anne Frank. And that is, you know, the extent to which Anne Frank's story became so popular has also meant that most readers were exposed actually to the Holocaust from the vantage point of a little girl living in hiding in Amsterdam, meaning far away from the camps and the ghettos and so on and so forth. So in lots of ways, it's a very, very limited 
um, mm -hmm. perspective. And by bringing in now these parallel stories, you know, in lots of ways that, that kind of reestablishes some balance that all of a sudden the stories that are added on bring in the better part of the European geography. Not all of a sudden, mm -hmm. it's not any longer just Germany and Amsterdam, but it's Italy, it's the Czech Republic, um, it's uh, France and so on and so forth. So that I think is interesting. And I think we are all in all at the moment where we start to appreciate that there's actually a lot more to Anne Frank that we, that we may have, you know, early on thought that even her often quoted belief in the goodness of people is at the moment when she writes it down in her diary, it's actually far more complicated. She's much more, you know, chained to like rightly to, to hope and despair and all these moments kind of exist almost alongside. We get a little bit of a glimpse here and there in some of the quotes that are lifted from, from her diary for the movie, but there's therefore much to discover because one of the things that is so perplexing about this young girl is even though she's in, in hiding, she's very uh, perceptive. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that she says are, you know, are very, very penetrating. So it's good time to watch a new Anne Frank movie. Sorry, that's the, the short answer to your question. <laughs> Something that really struck me about this film is that it seems to be trying to answer a question, which is what would Anne Frank's life have been if she had survived, right? I think that this is what's coming in through the narrative of the five women who survived. And in many ways, I think that the film does something really well, which is to show us that there's not a single answer, but rather multiplicities of ways to think about this. And I, and I really like that you already mentioned the geography that these voices are coming mm -hmm. from because something that struck me is that you know the film is produced and directed by italian filmmakers and so there is this new way of looking into the story of anne frank but through the lenses of those who are not often depicted or portrayed in films we don't often see these narratives of the italian the french and the czechs who went through that experience of course we have a lot in writing in literature but i found that that was a really interesting way also to diversify the geography a bit there is also with the added on stories now there's a kind of interesting moment where you think well they're called parallel stories so mm -hmm. as you approach the movie overtly we are most familiar with Anne Frank, so she seems most accessible to us we are far less familiar with the stories of the others but mm -hmm. then in a different way, we hear about the stories of the others from themselves, their survivors. So we hear them in their own voices. Whereas, and we can kind of discuss this a little bit, and Frank comes to us always via the voice of someone else and is in lots of ways far less accessible to us and is kind of reenacted through Helen Mirren and the whole kind of stage setting that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. That you know also kind of creates certain problems. Just let me mention one thing that you just you know mentioned in passing. The annex itself was actually empty, and by the time it's turned into a museum in 1960, and Frank's father Otto insists on it staying empty because he wants the void to stand in for the absence of of, of the Jewish community, and so. The movie does a little bit of a trick with us because we see Helen Marin reading the diary, but it's not the actual room. It's actually a pretend actual room because the room itself would be empty. There are only very few things that have remained. One of them is, you know, we see that in the movie, all of her Hollywood stars on, on the wall. So that's, you know, in the original 
Um, mm-hmm. The father's mocking of his daughter's height, changing height. That's original. Mm-hmm. And a few other things. So that's, I think, where I'm like a little troubled sometimes that the, the stories respectively come to us in different ways. On the one side, very authentically through the voice of the survivors. On the other side, through an actress and through a stage performance. Exactly. That's a very interesting point because I think at some point in the in the film itself, Helen Mirror actually says that she's in the same room. It gives the viewers the false impression that it's actually the, the same location. And so you already mentioned the book has been published, you know, it was published in 47. It has been translated into 67 languages, sold millions and millions of copies. And I think it's really important for us to also note that this diary is often the entry point mm-hmm. for for, for most children, for most uh, young people as they're learning about the Holocaust. What do you think is the contribution of a film like this to the memory of the Holocaust? Well, that's an interesting one because in many ways, I guess the uh, the 21st century Katrina is supposed to, to kind of anchor that question as she's traveling across Europe and hashtagging. She's trying to make sense of what she learns, right? So in mm-hmm. lots of ways... Uh, she re- very much represents someone who is who is approaching this and is trying to learn from this. I think one of the problems that reviewers and have had, if this is the movie that is, you know, supposedly creating enough for us another way by which we learn about the Holocaust, in particular, uh, mm-hmm. school children, so that or you know, teenagers, then in lots of ways that encounter is enriched by the addition of the extra five stories. Exactly. But conversely, there's almost no historical context whatsoever. There's Michael Birnbaum, who's brought in once or twice. There's a short back reference to Eichmann and the Eichmann trial in in uh, Jerusalem and the importance of, of the witnesses. And then uh-huh. I think there's otherwise just from the Anne Frank House in, uh, in Amsterdam, um, Leopold Ronald, I think is his name. Um, and that's it. So there's very little of kind of setting of the stage in terms of where we are. There's something interesting about these um, stories. It's not just that they're all uh, little girls, that they all get caught up in this kind of still complexing geography of the Holocaust, but it all happens quite late to them. They're all wrapped up still in this kind of 44. I mean, this is exactly. Frank had gone into hiding in 42 um, in the summer and she had successfully been in hiding all the way up until August 44. So in our own kind of timeline comes August 44. We're almost thinking already this is the kind of beginning of the end because the Americans have landed in the Normandy, right? Paris is is about to uh, have liberated. There's a lot, you know, that would needed to be explained, but that I think is precisely what the movie doesn't do. Okay. It's a good movie, but it doesn't do that. No history. And that, that was the next, Barely the next maps, you know, exactly, exactly. Um, and I was even thinking as I was watching this, I was thinking about that project that we did um, some years ago, the digital studies of the Holocaust and Amel is here with us. Uh, she's part of that team in which that, that was precisely our point, right? To try and see the timeline of how late these deportations are actually taking place. If we look at the Italian case, it's really after September 43 that it really begins. Right. And so you're rightly pointing out that, you know, oftentimes they're trying to say that these are parallel stories. However, is a very distinct, each of them is a very distinct narrative um, that would have, you know, we could have really benefited as viewers to have much more 
of a detailed explanation or a bit more of the historical background. So that's, I think, what a little bit short shortened here, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. in, in the actual movie, which I think for, again, the intended audience of this movie, I think more likely will not have an immense amount of of context and historical knowledge may or may not be a problem. It doesn't seem to stand in the way of of our stand in um, teenager Katrina. Mm-hmm. In fairness, she travels to the actual sites. She, you see her, you know, investigating the the different remnants, the museums, and so she's actually engaged in a far more comprehensive learning process for, within which and Frank is only one part. Mm-hmm. So that's the ideal way maybe of, of learning about it. But what do you think about that Instagramming and hashtagging? Do you like that? So this is this is the part that, you know, I think it's it's where we are. Let's just say this, right? Because, for example, I was thinking last year when we taught um, an introductory class um, on the Holocaust to mostly freshmen and sophomore students. And when I was teaching the session about remembrance, uh, which was towards the end of the semester, that very popular um, Instagram account, Ava Stories, had just come out. And for those who are not familiar, um, Ava Stories is a, an Instagram account that was created in Israel by a father-daughter duo who are, you know, children and grandchildren of survivors. And they created this Instagram account that documents the life of a Jewish girl, a 13-year-old Hungarian Jewish girl, um, imagining that if she had a smartphone as she was going through the Holocaust. And so, you know, every day there's a post that, that, that she posts on this Ava Stories Instagram and everyone can follow along. And very quickly, you know, she gained a lot of attention, 1.3 million followers. And in the end, you have almost a two hour long film out of all of these short little stories of uh, the daily occurrences. And it is all very much based on um, the diary of another young girl whose name was Ava Hyman. And so, you know, during that 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 session in my class, I, I introduced this to the student and I, I got their feedback to figure out, you know, how do you feel about this? Um, um, what are your thoughts, your impressions? And I was actually quite surprised that for the majority of these students, they thought it was something very powerful. They thought it was something very positive. And some of them even said, you know, throughout the whole semester, we're reading things and we're studying this and that. But this actually really connected with me because I could see it. I could hear it. Um, and so, you know, it's I think there's really no escaping this, the new technology that we're in. And I think we have what well, we have to do, and we see this done in the film here um, through the social media posts, is that we have to find ways of incorporating um, and taking the lead, really, in this new medium in order for us to actually teach and provide, you know, good knowledge and, and factual information about the Holocaust. Because if we, you know, kind of dismiss it, I think that th- that would be a mistake. So... Do you like it then? <laughs> it's a little bit odd, you know, in the film, I thought it was a little bit odd. But again, you know, it's it's the way in which, you know, the Katarina character, that's how she is chronicling her experience. That I think I... is exactly the, the, I'm sorry, that's I think exactly what sets it apart. It's not exactly. that via, you know, a social media, we're encountering the stories of the survivors of Anne Frank. Katerina is just using it rather as a way of chronicling her own experience. Exactly. I think it's a really important way for us to see how, you know, this teenage girl is chronicling her experience as she's going through these sites of memories. 
Um, and I found very interesting that from the beginning, she's set apart from the group of students who are with her at Bergen-Belsen. And so in, in some ways, it's this very internal journey that she goes through as she is for the first time, and we get this impression by the, by the things that she's writing in those posts, that it's the first time in her life that she's being exposed to this kind mm -hmm. of um, horrific knowledge, right? And there's all kinds of reactions that she's having. So I think it's 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 a valid it's a valid way. But I did think that at certain points of the film, it detracted a little bit of the narrative, right? The juxtaposition of of for example her post, and then you go to the to the black and white footage of what was actually happening. There, there seemed to be a little bit of a disconnect for me in certain as in certain moments of the film. Yes, it may make one like a little bit uncomfortable that the hashtagging seems sometimes a little bit reductive of, of what mm -hmm. it actually is trying to get at. But I think it's more a way of indexing a certain moment in which she's yeah. making sense out of it. How, just before we maybe close this part, how about the uh, Mirren, her reenactment of Anna Frank? I, I find that more problematic, how you you have her in the room reading the diary and kind of reliving or reenacting some of the emotions that Anne Frank may or may not have had. I, I think that creates a kind of proximity um, that's almost uncomfortable of sorts. Um, what do you make out of the ending scene where Helen Mirren opens the door? And Katerina is on the other side of the door. And then the Katerina walks into, you know, the Anne Frank room and then Helen Mirren leaves. But it's like this very strange kind of moment. I, you know, it was one of the of the many that made me a little bit uneasy. So but like I said earlier, I, I like actually the Katrina um, you know, person far more than maybe others do. I think you know, she's fairly innocent, so you can't hold her too responsible right. because the hashtags are more an indexing rather than an interpretation. She kind of feels out her way. It's when all of this collapses in, into her quite literally walking back in time. I mean, that's what it suggests. That's why I think I get a little uneasy. Easy. And so I think, um, I don't know. Um, it's difficult. How how do you reenact the the diary? You know, do you go with a actress like the Helen Mirren? Um, I think mm -hmm. it's what seventy five, so she's in line with the age of the other survivors. Mm -hmm. But she reads the voice of a fourteen or fifteen year olds and her emotional woes, so that becomes a little yeah. weird, um, yeah. right? <laughs> it's a bit unbalanced. Yeah, right? uh, and so uh, I think. You know, I you know I I I appreciate appreciate actually the Anne Frank House sometimes for trying to do less with more, and you see that even on their website that it's very sparingly some photos, some quotes, and I think there's a lot of these moments in the diaries when when you like put them you know just in the context you know August her last entry, and you just show the map of where the the allies are, for example, it can give you enough to think about. You don't need, exactly. you know, a rebuilt room or anything like that. And I think, therefore, this is a diary which, whose power, I think, is actually only in so exists insofar as the reader uses their imagination, which is a bit of a dangerous territory, to be sure, when it comes to Holocaust um, education. Mm -hmm. But I rather have the reader kind of, you know, investigate via the imagination than 
in front rather being directed by very reductive props okay which almost feel more like crutches of sorts of of the process and i think that's something that i thought at the end even though it was like really strange it was almost as though you know the passing the baton to the next generation which is something that with all these stories about the grandchildren with their grandmothers the ones that survived so in in some way i also interpreted that as being kind of okay Here's the next generation, you know, they're going to do their social media posts about this and they will take the information forward. But that's also, I think there's something really strange about it because if, if you're thinking about it as the kind of changing of the gods in terms of the, right. the, the angels of memories that hold the, uh, the, the past, then why is it Helen Marin and not the other survivors? True. Good point. Right? Very uh, good point, yeah. So I think she kind of slots is slotted almost into a kind of quasi elevated role, whereas you have the actual survivors there. If they are the ones who at the end kind of are in a setting talking to her, well, that makes much more sense to me. And then the other thing which I, you know, thought was, you know, early on when she said Bergen Belsen, I think from from the perspective of the movie making of the movie it's the first parts are the best because there you just get these shots of these very abstract landscapes of Bergen-Belsen the yeah. documentaries they don't I mean it's like this austerity of German memory maybe that's why I like it but um, it's not you know populated with too many props and so yeah. it seems almost cleaner therefore and more abstract at first and then it gets more more and more cuddly toward the end and that gets a little much for me at some point. Uh, we can open, open up it for up questions. to questions which you can ask. Now we now we have a way of catching up with the chatting function if there was anything in there. No, obviously, you know, as far as the technology is concerned, the smartphones is an imposition from the well, 21st century into the context of the 1930s, but uh, the character really uses the, her smartphone and exists in, in, in the context of the movie only in the 21st century. So she's not part of the reenacting. So in that mm -hmm. respect, I think there's no confusion in terms of what technology is available or not. What we do know is that for the Franks, the radio is a very important bit of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and that's another part that, you know, is to this day visible. They are quite well informed toward the end of 44 in terms of the advances of the Allies. There's this map, and you see it in the movie, where Otto constantly puts in new pins, um, mm -hmm. depending on where respectively the Allies have already been and advancing, feeling that they're obviously quite close. I mean, this is the the big tragedy and all this chronology of that late 44, that in many ways, the Americans on the one side and the Soviets on the other and the British and the French are collapsing upon the Third Reich. And in, for all intents and purposes, and Frank sits right on the edge of, of sorts almost to, to, to be, you know, hopefully still liberated, then she gets uh, however, um, at first taken up in August and then um, put into Westerbrook, the uh, the transit Present. camp, and then from there on onward in September, still deported together with over a thousand others onward to Auschwitz, only then to be channeled back into Bergen-Belsen, where ultimately she will die in February, 
or 45 of typhus. But in other words, already within you know moment of the third third Reich and the Holocaust that otherwise we view as really the tail end of it, where um, in many ways many camps had already been liberated, starting with the bigger ones in the east. Majdanek was one of the very first ones, September 44. So by the time and Frank dies, this is really the, the in the kind of ends of of the Holocaust, where however still many many die, um, and that's the the big tragedy that also comes out very well out of the the stories of the other survivors, um, that in many ways, while we might think of the Third Reich as unraveling, in other ways they're still continuing the pursuit of of genocide all the way down, and you see that in the lives of these. Uh, little girls um, that are still being caught by the mm -hmm. machinery and, and sent across, you know, the geography of um, of Europe. There's another question here. Could you return to the question of recreating Anne Frank's room for Helen Mirren? What is the balance between historical authenticity, the real room being empty, versus engaging the audience emotionally with Helen Mirren reading in this authentic looking film? Um, and then also any comments on what the director may have been intending by having Helen Muir reading from the book version of the diary rather than the visible prop of the diary itself. So just maybe there's a lot packed into this. Um, <laughs> yes. All right, let's take take it from, from the end. The visible prop of the diary itself actually does surface uh, at one point in the, in the movie. So you have a very quick uh, look at it from the outside. You see the checkered red color. And then you have one or two other glimpses into it, in particular when it comes to the photo of Anne Frank herself. You see the original, and you start to understand that her diary is actually, in reality, it's more of a scrapbook where she writes and also glues things in. So that's maybe um, just on the tail end of of the uh, couple of questions that um, you you put together. Um, so what is the appeal of of the reenactment? Um, I think there's a sense here that um, because we have the diary, that the diary itself um, is a very, very powerful voice, in particular if it's voiced by by a you know very well respected actress. And then I think the actress herself lines up with the age of the survivors, so that creates a certain symmetry of sorts and and makes sense. Um, I I personally, you know, as as you might have sensed in my my uh, comment about it, I'm a little uneasy about this um, rebuilding of a, of a room. Um, I I find there there to be really no need, and I think it creates a false pre pretense that is really hard to deliver upon. And that is the, the kind of presence. I think a diary is in many ways very powerful, and it's a very powerful voice of a teenager that with all of you know, those limits and restrictions and the sensitivities that come along with it gives us a certain sense of what the Holocaust was or appeared to be like for someone like Anne Frank in her particular moment. And I think that's very powerful. And I, I think that, you know, it's almost more powerful than the filled room. And I think we get a little bit too easily distracted by by all the stuff and bits and bobs, whereas I think our our real encounter and our attention should be at what we have, which is the diary itself. Um, I, I understand why it was done as it was as a way of 
of making this more accessible of you know describing the kind of close quarters in particular since she had a share room and to kind of bring the awkwardness of these living uh, circumstances out and, and all of that but i think that could have done and could have been done in other ways and i think you know truth is up until now the the original wishes from my father have always been followed the um, the annex remains empty and in many ways to this day i mean if you listen to the director of the Anne Frank Museum, he takes great pride in the emptiness. And he says in many ways, this is one of the most powerful aspects of that museum, that it's not filled with lots of things, because I think that emptiness compels us also more to kind of think about ourselves in that space rather than to be distracted um, by, by all the other things. So on balance, I understand what they were trying to do, but I, I'm a bit deep. The purest here that I th think I, in particular, since it's it's not the original, um, and I think it also creates, you know, it's even not made clear in the movie that that's what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So, and that's maybe the the kind of you know where I think they're really crossing a line that, for all intents and purposes, as a viewer, you wouldn't know that you're looking not at the real room. Mm -hmm. We have another great question here. The Caterina character with her cell phone made me wonder what would have happened if smartphones existed in the 1930s and 40s? This is an impossible question, but do you think the Holocaust would have even happened if people would have been able to send out documentation of the brutality of what was actually happening? So that's, you know, in lots of ways, the, the kind of impossible questions are sometimes the good ones because they make us like think about this all mm -hmm. a little bit harder. So. You know, there are two different sides, first of all, to technology. And I think the earlier question about the smartphone went into the other pocket propaganda. The Nazis had their own technology. They had radios and their newspapers and their parades. And so our more modern technology today would have, you know, been utilized by them to the best of their abilities. Um, they were very well crafted in the use of propaganda. The other um, side of that question is whether, in other words, the quick spread of, of information about the Holocaust could have, you know, been something that would have possibly prevented either the Holocaust to happen or would have saved some. You know, there I'm a little bit more cautious because I think in the end, most of it did happen not in hiding, but in plain sight. It's not that the Holocaust was not known. It's just, I think that largely we, at the time, our societies preferred not to look too closely, but there was quite a bit of information that more freely circulated. In particular, since 43, from 43 onwards, um, and that's it again, what we also can gauge from Anne Frank's diary, there's a pretty good sense um, of, of what is happening. This is not any longer a secret that uh, could have made, you know, been broken otherwise. And that is a secret that doesn't exist neither for the victims any longer, even though they might not always know all the details, nor for the uh, for the Western world that is more and more becoming aware of it, but also almost more importantly, not for the Germans neither. We have to assume that from 40, 43 onwards, the larger part of the German population is, is aware um, at least to some extent of what the Holocaust is. It's not a secret kept that is kept away from them. This is actually something, if I might jump in, um, that I thought was really striking. And I didn't remember this, this detail from the diary that by October 42, 
and Frank already had heard about the gas that you know Jews were being murdered by gas. And I think that that's a really interesting you know detail to keep in mind that by October forty two, if she who was in hiding, you know, they were able to get access to this knowledge, like you rightly say, you know, with the radios, um, the world knew. And I think that this is the part that is most difficult for us when we're thinking about this, that the world did know that it was happening, right? Perhaps not all the details, but it was widely known that this was was what was happening. Large numbers of people were being deported and the camps existed. So it's a very difficult thing for us to think about. Well, as, as a teaching tool for middle and high school, I think it actually works because there you ho hopefully would be introduced to the, the Holocaust within the context of a class and would learn a few other things. And I think it would, you know, allow you more specifically um, to explore a couple of issues, the the number of victims of children, for example, being one of them. So I think it's, it would be a very good teaching tool. Um, I think I like a lot about the other testimonies. I like a lot about the kind of geographies that it comes, you know, thereby to, to make visible. I think it creates more opportunities for individual um, students afterwards to kind of go back into these individual stories and try to learn more about these individuals, try to kind of maybe pinpoint their itinerary again from where to where they had uh, been deported because a good number of them go through a good number of camps. So I think there are lots of also learning activities that one can very easily attach to to these um, individual stories. So no, on that score, I would say it's a good teaching tool. Be that as it may, I think, like you already said, it's freely available on Netflix. So if you happen to have some time, uh, I think it's worth it, to, uh, worthwhile to to to, to mm -hmm. watch. So you should certainly um, make sure that you catch this. Thank you again, all, very much for being here, and uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll hopefully soon be able to see you all again in person. We thank everyone who participated in this live conversation, and I thank you for listening to this episode. To learn more about us, visit our website at utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman, and be sure to follow us on social media on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast, and on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center. Stay safe and take care. Until next time.